Psalm number 27. You know, you may not be aware of it or not, but there's a vast difference between teaching and preaching. And sometimes the differences are very obvious, and other times the differences are very subtle. And, you know, I have uh, teaching notes for the book of Psalms, just like I have preaching notes for the book of Psalms. And in my Microsoft Word documents, I have teaching the Psalter and preaching the Psalter. The Psalter is the book of Psalms. And when I have the great privilege of teaching the book of Psalms, there's a great section in my notes, oh, that lasts many, many pages. And what we do is we go through the various Psalms, and we begin and ask the question or the statement that is made. It says, mention and discuss what you believe to be the main thing God is seeking to accomplish in your heart and life through Psalm number blank. And we may do, I don't know, in the Psalms, 70 or so Psalms like that. And the reason why we do that is because it's important for us to understand that the purpose for the book of Psalms is not just that we would read through it in a year in a Bible reading program and sort of, you know, if you've ever had one of these navigator uh, Christian uh, Bible reading programs in the year, you know they break up the Bible into all these different sections and when you've read your uh, section for that morning, you sort of check the box and move on to the next section. And if you're not careful, what begins to happen is the you begin to read the book of the Psalms or the Bible in general in sort of a very mechanical kind of way. And if you're not careful, what begins to happen is instead of letting the Word of God get deep down into your soul and into your heart, and the message of those various psalms to penetrate you in the uh, very recesses, the depths of who you are as a human being, sometimes it sort of just gets uh, read through and read over uh, sort of as a duty rather than as seeking to let God change your heart and life. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you uh, something that's happening in Psalm 27. I believe it's one of the main things that God would have us to walk away from this great psalm with. The first six verses, I'm going to read quick so you can listen along quick or you can just listen and read along quickly if you'd like. The Bible says in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I... That, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The first six verses are the first half of this great psalm. The other half is found in verses 7 through 14. Let's read them quickly. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The interesting feature and perhaps the main theme or the main feature of this great psalm is this. Verses 1, and six, one through 6 and verses 7 through 14 have a very different sort of feel to them. And because of the differences between the first half of Psalms 27 and the last half of Psalm 27, there are some Bible teachers, scholars, theologians, whatever they want to call themselves, but people who uh, have made a profession out of studying the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, some of these have assumed that there were originally two Psalms that were sort of put together at some later point in Jewish history. And uh, as provocative and interesting as that may be, I don't think that that's what's happening here, primarily because both uh, the first half of Psalm 27 and the second half of tw Psalm 27 contain similar themes. Uh, notice also an interesting feature of this psalm is that in verse 11, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Well, where did we see mention of a level ground at? Well, we saw in the 26th Psalm in verse number 12, My foot stands on level ground, in the assembly I will bless the Lord. And last week we talked about how to not backslide in the faith and how to slide forward and make sure that you're constantly moving and striving into the heart and will of God for your life. And this psalm sort of picks up that theme and runs with it. But what's interesting is that the first six verses of Psalm 27 can be summarized by one word. And that word is triumph. Triumph. David exemplifies, David showcases for us a triumphant kind of faith and confidence in God. But then in uh, verse number 7, verse 7 through 14, something there's a shift in the feel of this psalm. And David goes from triumph to tragedy. And if I could give you one word that would summarize the second half of Psalm 27, it's the word tragedy. The first, first portion of this psalm, the first six verses, is David's declaration of confidence and trust in God. But then the last half of this verse is David's lament, his plea, his broken agony before God to hear his prayers. And this is what has caused some confusion with Bible teachers and scholars uh, at, over the years. It's, the question is this. How in the world can we have in a singular psalm triumph and tragedy? How is that possible? Well, 
The reason is that's caused so much confusion because of the structure of this psalm. It begins with triumph and ends in tragedy is that almost every other psalm begins the opposite way. Almost every other psalm, and I think that this is one of the only psalms, if not the only psalm in the entire book of psalms, that begins on a high note but ends on a low note. It begins with triumph and it ends with tragedy. And this is what we call an anticlimax. This is a literary feature. This is not unusual in literature for things to go this way. Perhaps you have seen films that begin on a high note and end on a low note. So if I could give you sort of a thrust of what Psalm 27 teaches, what God is seeking to accomplish in our lives through the 27th Psalm. God is seeking to cause us to trust in the Lord amidst all the changing moods of faith. To cause us to trust in the Lord amidst all the changing moods of faith. The moods of faith are always changing. At the beginning of this psalm, we have David on top of the world praising the Lord. But then the last portion of this psalm, he is very sad and broken in his spirit. It is not normal for human beings, even Christians, saints of God, to feel the same mood of faith all the time. Sometimes when we trust in the Lord, we are way up on the mountain. And other times when we trust in the Lord, we find ourselves deep down in the valley. The first six verses of this great and 27th Psalm may be described as the fight of faith. But the last half of this psalm is the fight for faith. Is there a difference? You better believe it. Sometimes you will have to fight for your faith. And other times you will be fighting the good fight of your faith. And here we have sort of a marriage of what seems to be two themes that are diametrically opposed to one another. Polar opposites. And by the way, this is another one of the great themes of the book of Psalms, if you haven't been paying attention. Uh, It is how in the world is it possible for us in the same Psalm to feel triumph and yet tragedy? How is it possible to be on the mountain and then the very next breath be down in the valley? Well, have you ever lived life? Isn't life just like that? And it's possible for these two feelings that are seemingly opposed to each other to live in the same room together at once. We have the wrong thinking that everything is supposed to be all hunky-dory all the time. It's simply not true. The fight of faith and the fight for faith are both equally real. We have to be very careful with books and teaching that always makes you think you're supposed to be tiptoeing through the tulips. That everything is a bed of roses, a walk in the park. That's simply not true. It wasn't true for the great saints of the Bible. It wasn't true for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it certainly will not be true for you and I. 
This 27th Psalm testifies to the reality of triumph and tragedy. The fight for faith is every bit as important as the fight of faith. In fact, notice that the larger portion of the 27th Psalm is devoted to the fight for faith rather than the fight of faith. Remember, one of the greatest truths and attributes of the people of God is that they can learn how to suffer victoriously in faith. I want to draw your attention to one of the greatest passages in the Psalms on faith suffering. Faith suffering. Psalm number 53, verses 3 and 4. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. He said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So, without further ado, I want to ask you a question. It's a very poignant question. It's a very soul-searching question. What is better, to put your trust in God when you are afraid, or to trust in God and be not afraid? What is better, to trust in God when you are afraid, or to put your trust in God and be not afraid. The answer is in the form of another question. The question is, well, where are you right now? Because you may need to put your trust in the Lord when you are afraid, or you may be putting your trust in the Lord and being not afraid. See, what we think is that one of these experiences of faith is superior to the other and the other inferior. But that's not how David views it and that's certainly not how God views it. Where are you right now because you may need either one of those at any time in your life? Don't expect to be in the I will trust in God and be not afraid group because that's simply not true all the time. What we need is to learn to trust in the Lord through all the changing moods of faith. The principle is faith. You say, I'm fearful, trust the Lord. You say, I'm strong, trust the Lord. I'm high on the mountain, trust God. I'm low in the valley, trust God. The opening verses of Psalm 27 could be summarized in the phrase, I will trust in God and I will not be afraid. But the final verses of Psalm 27 could be summarized in the, in the phrase, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. This is the great teaching of the 27th Psalm. To teach us how to trust in the Lord amidst all the changing moods of faith. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
This phrase, whom shall I fear, is the key to this entire psalm. But notice that this phrase comes after the phrase, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light in the first six verses, period. But in the last eight verses, David says, the Lord is my light in the presence of darkness. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord is your light and He lights you and He strengthens you so that you can stand victoriously in faith on the mountain? But the Lord is also your light and He lights the path for you as you walk through the dark valley. I don't know about you, but I've had to walk through some very dark valleys in my life. And it's good to know that in the dark valley... In the valley of the shadow of death, he leads me and he guides me. I like what the 23rd Psalm said. He said, you prepare a table before me in the absence of my enemies. Wait a minute. That's the new Joel Sharp version. It's very flawed. He didn't say that he prepares a table before me in the absence of my enemies. That's what we want. He said he prepares a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. If it was not for the presence of my enemies, I might never know what it's like for God to prepare a table before me. See, it's in the presence of my enemies that the greatest manifestation of the light and salvation of God is manifested in my life. What does it mean that he prepares a table before me in the absence? Wait, in the presence of my enemies. What God wants to do is while the war is raging around me, while the forces of light and darkness wage war against one another in the heavenly realm, and while the children of men wage war against one another in the earthly realm, God wants us to have fellowship with Him. Nothing says fellowship more than sitting down for a good meal. And that's the kind of life that God is seeking to lead all of us into. A life of preparing a table of fellowship, of communion, of camaraderie with Him in the presence of our enemies. I like what the old hymn by Mr. Ira Sankey, simply trusting Jesus every day. Even when my faith is small, Trusting Jesus, that is all. If I could give you a hymn that would summarize the message of Psalm 27, it's that great hymn by Mr. Ira Sankey. This 27th Psalm tells us how to have confidence in the Lord of light amidst all the changing moods of faith. During our study of this wonderful Psalm, may we come to know the Lord as our light. Oftentimes we feel the tension between triumph and tragedy, confidence and anxiousness, faith and fear. This psalm puts words to this seeming contradictory feelings. And not only does Psalm 27 put words to those feelings of seeming contradiction, but Psalm 27 validates that experience. I thought fear was sin, 
It's possible to fear in faith. It's possible to have faith in the midst of your fears. David did. And when David felt fear arising in his heart, what did he do? He cried out to the Lord. I have several points this morning. Don't know how many of them I'm going to get through. You pray for me. Well, I'll have you out by 2 o'clock. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Whoops. Roman numeral number one, the basis of our confidence. Roman numeral number two, the Lord is my light. Roman numeral number three, the Lord is my light continued. Roman numeral number four, the faithful father. And Roman numeral number five, the father of lights. Always remember that the tapes will be available on the website or through CD if you desire. David says that God was three things to him in Psalm 27 verse 1. Let's look at it. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Then he said, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. He said, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. And this is how this great psalm begins. When we feel ourselves sinking down with feelings of anxiety and fear, of anxiousness, and all these other things, when we find ourselves just being able to hold on in the fight for faith, what we need to do is go back and declare who we know God to be. And that's how David begins. I want to give you several Old Testament references to God as quote-unquote light. Job speaks of heaven as the, quote, abode of God in Job 38, 19. Psalm 104 says that God wraps himself in light as with a garment. Verse number two. <clears throat> Several verses affirm that the Lord turns my darkness into light. 2 Samuel 22, verse 29. Psalm 36 and verse 9 declares, in your light we see light. But the striking feature of Psalm 27 is that this is the only verse in the entire Old Testament where it specifically says the Lord is light. It alludes to God being light. It suggests that God is light. But what we must do is turn to the New Testament to see and find Him who is the embodiment of light. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. Light is actually another name for Jesus Christ. He said, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John chapter 1 verse 5 and verse 9. John, who makes this identification also in 1 John, he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Here's how it works. If I have Christ... If I'm born again, if I'm saved, I have him who is the personification, the embodiment. His name is light. And Christ lives in me. And I live in Christ. And Christ Jesus, the Lord, Christ in me, Colossians says, is my hope of glory. I have access to all the light of God every moment of every day if I am in Christ, if I'm a Christian. You say, but Brother Joel, I don't feel like I have light living in me. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. All that matters is faith. 
If God says that Jesus is light, and God says that when you got saved, when you were born again, He put Christ in you, then what that means is, is that the very light of God lives in you, and you have access to the light of God every moment of every day. And this is how David can say, I am fighting the good fight of faith, and I'm also fighting the good fight for faith. Because it's God who lights us. It's God who illuminates us. All throughout the New Testament, Christ being the light is associated with illumination, with understanding. But I want to show you how the Lord our light is associated, what that's associated with in the 27th Psalm. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. He said, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The light of the Lord in Psalm 2 is associated with the defeat of my dark enemies. So I have several points here I want to give them to you. Here are several ways that God lights us. God illuminates us to the nature of our enemy attacks. Dark accusations, dark condemnation, dark thoughts, dark temptations, and a dark world system. Dark accusations, dark condemnations, dark thoughts, dark temptations, and a dark world system. These are our enemies. And they are constantly seeking to enshroud us in darkness. They surround us on all sides, just like they did to David. They're constantly trying to get us to doubt the light that is in us. Our hope of glory. The word glory is a reference to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. The light and the glory of God which rested on the tabernacle and rested in the middle of the camp of Israel as they were lead, being led through the wilderness into the promised land. The Shekinah glory assured the people of Israel that God was present with them. And what's so powerful is that in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God was represented on the outside, above the tabernacle, above the temple. But guess where the Shekinah glory of God is manifested in the New Testament? I get to be the one who tells you this right here. The Shekinah glory of God no longer is external. The glory of God, the light of God is internal. What the devil wants more than anything is to get you to doubt that. Dark accusations. Revelation 12, verse number 10. The Bible said, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. One of the horrible titles of Satan in the Bible is the accuser of our brethren. Why? Because that's what he does. Have you ever had thoughts of accusation? Have you ever had internal accusations? Have you ever had external accusations? Guess who is the accuser of you? Guess who is the one who is the author of accusations against the saints of God? Well, he says to me, Joel, you're not this. You're not that. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. 
You're not spiritual enough. You're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. And you know, I've come to the point in my Christian life where I look at the devil and I say, you're wrong. I'm much worse than that. It's true, isn't it? See, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, I am a sinner living in a sinful world. And when the devil comes to accuse you, the best thing you can do is just agree with him. And then claim the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. But if you believe his accusations and his fiery darts, where he's constantly nitpicking at you all the time, that's how the devil is. If you're being nitpicked about something you've done, about something you've said, and it's just burning in your conscience. It's the fiery darts of the devil. It's Satan. It's demonic. It's external pressure seeking to get you to fall into the next point, dark condemnation. Dark condemnation. Condemnation is one of the most discouraging, darkening, disheartening things that a Christian can go through. Condemnation, when you believe the fiery darts of accusation that Satan is constantly hurling your way, you're not good enough, you're not, you don't love God enough, blah, 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 all this stuff, his lies and his deception, the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. And God says, cast him down in Christ's name. Believe me for the power of the blood and the cross of Jesus. But if we believe the enemy's lies of accusations, we fall into dark condemnation. And it's discouragement, it's doubt, it's depression, it's darkness. And we have dark thoughts, don't we? That's the flesh. Don't blame everything on the devil. Sometimes we give him too much credence and power, don't we? Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's our own psyche, it's our own thoughts that condemn us, that accuse us. Don't let it do that. These are, the, these are the tactics of our enemy. The enemy of, our enemy is a master of darkness. Now, I want to show you something very encouraging because I'm not going to get through all my notes, I can tell you that. But I want to show you something that's going to really encourage your heart. What does it mean when David says that the Lord is my high tower or stronghold in verse number one, he said, the Lord is my high tower. He said, the Lord is the high tower of my life or the stronghold of my life. This has the idea of a fortress. In the ancient world, great cities would have great walls, sometimes 20, 30, 40 foot high and that deep. We're told the city of Babylon had walls so thick that you could drive four chariots next to each other around the entire city of Babylon. This was a huge walled city. But the city of Jerusalem also had walls. The reason why they had them was to protect themselves from marauders and invaders. And the Lord is my high tower. We're not really told exactly what that means in the Old Testament. We have an idea of what that means. But in the New Testament, I want to read you this verse. These verses, excuse me. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. Listen very closely. 
It said that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now listen to Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Isn't it wonderful to know that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that all the power of Satan has been put under the feet of Christ. But what does that mean for me? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 tells us what that means for me and for you if you are in Christ and a Christian. He says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So Christ is seated in the heavenly places. And then the Bible says that I am seated right next to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And you say, well, what does it mean that God is my high tower and stronghold, David? Well, we're not told in Psalm 27 what that means, but later on in Ephesians we are. In the book of Psalms in chapter 27 verse 1, we are told that God is our high tower. But then in Ephesians 1 and 2, we're told just how high the tower goes. The tower goes all the way to heaven with a king of kings sitting on the throne of glory and I'm sitting right there with him and all of my enemies are under our feet. This is called kingdom authority. Where is Satan? He's under our feet right now. This is a church epistle in Ephesians. This is not something we're waiting for. This is something that we have. You say, but I don't feel, brother. I don't feel like Satan and all the powers of darkness around us. The dark world system, dark accusations, dark condemnation. I don't feel like that's under my feet. Your job is not to feel it. Your job is to faith it, to believe it, to trust God at his word. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible says God cannot lie. So if God says that I'm seated in heavenly places on the throne with Christ and that the dark powers of this world are under Christ's feet and what that must mean therefore is that they're under my feet too. My job is to not try to figure all that out and comprehend it. My job is to believe it. My job is to trust God. And say, Lord, I do not understand what it means to have the powers of darkness under my feet. But Lord, you say it. It must be true because God cannot lie. And I believe that you are a God who cannot lie. And I'm trusting you, Lord, for my identity, for my union in Christ. And this is how triumph and tragedy can be married to one another. Kind of like my marriage. I'm tragedy, she's triumph. Wait a minute. But it's true, isn't it? We think that these feelings are antithetical to one another, and that's a lie. And unfortunately, a lot of Christian t teaching and thinking has made us feel like that. Well, if you're feeling tragic, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling fearful, well, then what that must mean is that you're in sin. I don't think so. That's not what Psalm 27 says. It's possible for faith and fear to dwell with one another in the same room and they're both alive and well. Would be to God that we would actually believe these things. No telling what God could do in our lives and through us. 
The Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. He illuminates me to the nature of my enemy's attacks. Satan seeks to cast a dark shroud of darkness. He pulls the wool over my eyes, doesn't he? Here he tries, and what God does is says, uh-uh, here's some light. <laughs> that wonderful. Can you thank God for that? And what begins to happen is when we believe God is our light, when we are trusting him to be our light, even if we don't feel like God is our light, when we have faith that he is, what begins to happen is that God begins to lead us on level ground. Look at this verse. This is powerful. Remember me telling you about the high tower and about being seated with Christ above all things and heavenly places and the powers of darkness are under my feet? Look at what he says in verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. <laughs> See, I'm not smart enough to make this stuff up. It's right there in the Bible. Take a look. It's in the book. It's reading rainbow. Some of y'all may be too old or not old enough to remember that. But I remember that. And it's true, isn't it? It's amazing what's right there in the Bible. On, I mean, it's just laying right there on the surface, but yet it's hidden, isn't it? The Lord is my light. What we need to do is look to the light source in verse number 4. The one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm number 23, the Bible says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But in this psalm, it says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Which one is it? Well, it's and, both. It's yes. See, this psalm deals with our present circumstances, all the days of my life, several times in this passage that that's mentioned. Psalm 23 deals with our eternal home, eternity, salvation, heaven with God. But see, we can have a little piece of heaven on earth, can't we? It's in fellowship and communion with God. It's believing Him and His Word. It's taking Him in faith. And it's a life of seeking the light. Folks... Listen, you have got to make a concerted effort. If you do not want to backslide, if you do not want to backslide, you are responsible to move toward the light. One thing that the sailors in the ancient times and uh, several hundred years ago, what they would look for is the lighthouse. And when they saw the lighthouse, they knew what was going on. They knew that there was land not too far away. And they moved toward the light in the midst of the darkness. That's our responsibility. God is light, but you've got to move toward him. You've got to pick it up and move forward. If you don't move forward, you'll slide backwards. There is no stagnancy in the Christian life. Be very careful with floating downstream. Only dead fish float downstream. You've got to be swimming, moving, prayer, crying out to God, calling on Him, studying the Word. It's a concerted effort. It's a seeking. But it's also a desiring of public worship. Listen to this. I'm just going to read you all this stuff. The ancient Hebrews did not separate the physical from the spiritual nearly as easy as we do. In fact, the tangible and intangible were intertwined for the ancient Jewish person. C.S. Lewis highlights this point when he says, quote, Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like a physical thirst in Psalm 42. From Jerusalem, His presence flashes out in perfect beauty, Psalm 50 and verse 2. 
Lacking that physical encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside. Psalm 63 and verse 2. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house. Psalm 65 and verse 4. Only there can they be at ease like a bird in the nest. Psalm 84 and verse 3. One day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere. Psalm number 10. And yet... We are the temple. We are the temple in the New Testament. And in John, in John 4 and verse 23, Jesus says, Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so what has happened is that we, because we believe we're the temple, and that's what the Bible says, and we believe that we worship God in spirit and truth, sometimes our pendulum swings back the other way. And now you have this movement. Well, we don't need to go to church. And uh, uh, the internet has made it far worse, hasn't it? Now you can just download a sermon. I mean, after all, if you don't like the way I preach, and I don't blame you, you can just go find somebody else on the internet that preaches some way that you like. And uh, if you don't like the Jesus that I'm preaching, you go down the road and find another Jesus to listen to. And if you don't like the way this church does things, then you can church hop and go all around where years ago people had to suffer hurt. If you're going to serve God and you're going to be a part of a local church, you can expect to be let down. I might even let you down. Matter of fact, if I know myself, I'm probably going to let you down. But guess what? The Lord never lets you down. And it's blood, sweat, and tears to build a gospel ministry, a local church, in a community. It's the plan and purpose of God for visible local churches. Not home churches where it's us for no more. And I'm bitter and I'm upset because, you know, pastor said something 15 years ago I didn't agree with. So we're just going to break bread at home and listen to internet sermons. I want to quote Dr. Boyce. I think he's probably a pretty good source. He says, and I quote, let me put it like this. There is something to be experienced of God in church that is not quite so easy to experience elsewhere. Otherwise, why have churches? If it is only instruction that we need, we can get that by simply audio tapes or a book. If it's only fellowship that we need, well, we can get that equally well, perhaps better in a small home gathering. There is something to be said for the sheer physical singing of the hymns, the sitting in the pews, the actual looking to the pulpit and gazing on the pulpit Bible as it is being expounded, the tasting of the Lord's Supper, and the very atmosphere of the place set apart for the worship of God that is spiritually beneficial. Isn't that true? Haven't you found, in a sense, haven't you found a sense of God's presence simply by being in God's house? I do not mean to deny that God can and should be worshipped elsewhere, but I am suggesting that the actual physical worship of God in the company of other believers can almost be sacramental. For what is it worth? Let me state that the Puritans were not as hesitant as we are on this point since they easily link the Old Testament temple to specific church worship. The great Richard Sibbs said boldly, particular visible churches under visible pastors are now God's tabernacle. Isn't that wonderful? Folks, be very, very careful in the day of online church. 
Be very careful in the day where so many people are breaking away from the mainstream churches. And they're doing their own thing. I have found that when people do that, it's probably because they don't want to have to be accountable to anybody. They want to do their own thing. They, they want to call their own shots. They want to be their own boss. Kind of like starting your own business. Wait a minute. I don't, want to be, don't want to be under my boss anymore. don't want to be accountable to my church. So I'll just go start one, us four, no more. Be very careful in the day of online worship. Because it, can, it might be supplemental, but it can never replace authentic local church worship with the saints. We have a faithful father, but he's the father of lights. I'm not going to give you all this. I just want to show you a couple of these passages. What does the Father of lights give us? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 In this psalm, David cries out, he seeks God for the good gifts of God. Number one, in verse number nine, Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. But look at verse 10. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He is a good and gracious father. He's the father of lights. And the gift that he gives us is the gift of acceptance. Your family may turn their back on you because of your Christian faith. Your co-workers may turn their back. Your husband or wife, may, children may turn their back on you and reject you because of your faith in Christ. But your heavenly father, the father of lights, he never does that. He gives you the good gift of acceptance before him. He listens to you in verse 11. He guides you also in verse 11, and he protects you all throughout this great psalm. These are the gifts that come down from the Father of lights. The Lord is my light, the God of my salvation. He is my stronghold and my high tower. May we come to know what it means to patiently wait upon the Lord our light as he guides us through the land of the living. Verse 13 and 14 of Psalm 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord.